You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. All right, John chapter 1 is where we are this weekend, and here we go with our sermon title, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Now that statement right there, Behold the Lamb of God, that statement right there summarizes the entire life of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God, that summarizes John's life. Question, what statement summarizes our lives? Would it be anything close to behold the Lamb of God. What statement does summarize our lives? Athlete? That used to be who I was. No longer an athlete anymore. Too old for that, huh? Maybe mom summarizes your life. It's a great thing. Not the best thing. Um, workaholic? Hope not. For some, though, that is. That's what summarizes your life. Um, student, musician, um, pleasure seeker, living for the next thrill of the moment, the next vacation. What statement summarizes, we can go on and on, what statement summarizes your life? There's hardly a better statement that could summarize our lives than people would look at us and say, it's a man or woman that says ultimately they're living, behold the Lamb of God. A life that points to Jesus Christ. There's no, there's no greater purpose ever. Imagine if that was what was said about us. I mean, that person, I mean, that, that guy, that, that woman, you know, he drives me crazy. He just, all he does is point to Jesus. That's all right. That's a good statement of blame right there. This is John the Baptist, though. You know, one of the things we can't take for granted in this series is that John the Baptist, in his pursuit of Christ, he actually wanted to become less. Like he actually wanted to be less because he knew the less he became as he pointed to Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God, as he directed the attention away from himself and to the Lord Jesus Christ, he lived by faith that the less he became, the more he actually started to live. Again, question, we asked this a couple weeks ago, we asked this again though, do we really want to become less? I just paused because I want us to think about that. Do we really want to become less? Do we really believe and have faith that the less we become, the more we actually start to live? Do we believe this with our lives? Are we living lives that less is more? I mean, just take, take this last week. Were we living out the truth that less is more when it's rooted in Jesus Christ? Did we prove that with our devotion? Devotions. Are we waking up and seeking our lives to be filled with Jesus Christ because we believe that the more he lives within us, the less we become, the more we live? Did we prove that with our affections? What were we loving this week? What did we place our heart upon? Where did our affections go? Was it, was it Christ or was it all a bunch of stuff in the world? Do we prove it in our, in our marriages? Because when I love Jesus Christ and I want to become less in him and I put my spouse first, 
Because as I love Christ, then I love my wife as Jesus loved the church who gave himself up for her. Did I prove it in my key relationships and friendships by outdoing one another and showing honor? That I gladly lower myself before my friend that they might be honored and I will be forgotten because I love Jesus so much. You see where I'm going with this? We can believe that concept here, but is it, is it taking root here? Did I live that out in, in my workplace this week? Do our lives speak out this truth? Uh, there's a ton of grace here right now. There, there's a ton of grace. But what we're, what we're recognizing right now, love, is we're recognizing that this is the battle of life. That we decrease and Christ increases. Lord willing, that exact passage next week. It's the battle against the flesh. However, if we are at the place where we truly believe that less of us and more of Christ means more of true life, if we believe that that is true, and I'm praying most of us do, yes, I believe that, and I want that, and we say, how do I do that? That's the thesis of today. How do I take active steps to become less that Christ might become more. F.B. Meyer summarized it beautifully. He said this. I mean, this is worth writing down. Take a picture, do something. I remember when I first heard this, school, I don't know, 15, 17 years ago, I'm like, that is awesome. Listen, the only hope for a decreasing self. Here it is, love. Here it is. I mean, take this. Put this in your pipe and smoke it. Okay, this is awesome, okay? Listen, the only hope for a decreasing self, listen, listen, here it is, here it is, an increase in Christ. The moment Jesus Christ becomes greater in our lives, we automatically start to shrink. See what happens there? You can't have Christ become more in your life without automatically, spiritually becoming less. You can't, you can't compete with Christ. You, you can't have him exalted in your life and then you grow with him. No, no, no. You become less as he becomes more. But then you've never wanted to live more than when you are decreasing the crisis increasing. The only hope of you and I becoming less is Jesus Christ increasing. And that's our entire text today. It's fantastically Christological. And Christological just means it's the nature of the life of Jesus Christ. It's all this passage is. It's Jesus, 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 Jesus. That's why I'm so excited. It just feels like you just know you can't do any wrong right now. We're just going to go through a text that's got Jesus exalted in every verse. And you just feel safe. Because you know this is what the Lord blesses. You know what I'm saying, church? It's so beautiful and it's so right. And so I believe this is one of these passages the Lord wants to move in in a very special way. Look at how we end and the service to the Lord's Supper. It's just so right. It's so right. And so we so need to so pray. I'm going to pray now. Father, unusually expectant this weekend for you, because I just firmly believe that as we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as high as we can, then you fill that. It's what you bless. It's who you are. It's what you do. And so I pray, Lord, you will find us, men and women, fully believing, Lord Jesus Christ, as you increase, that we will never be more satisfied, never be more joy-filled, never be more fulfilled. Lord, I admit and I believe that as we increase, then 
Life probably doesn't become easier, but man, it becomes better. And so this is a battle for faith right now. Do I believe this? Do I believe this? Men and women, even right now, do I believe that? Do I believe that all my life should be pointing to the glory of Christ? Well, I pray you will convince us by your word, and I pray the Holy Spirit would just rock lives. Yes, Lord, start with me. And I'm excited for right now, together, your church, your family, your bride, studying your word for your glory. In Jesus' name, if you agree, you can say Amen. John 1, 29. Check it out. Glorious. Verse 29. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the... Just live in the text, okay? Like Just imagine seeing John the Baptist, and there he is. The next day he saw Jesus coming. He, he sees him coming. Imagine what his heart felt in that moment. He knows what's going on right here. Behold, I mean, whoever's listening to him, and just look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin in the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. Why? Because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water. Notice that he might be revealed to Israel. Glory. And John bore witness, this is awesome. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he, listen, he, God, who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then also John ends the section, he says, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Wow. This passage is bursting with light and power. You know, sometimes you can look up at a star-dusted sky, and there's beautiful stars all throughout the sky, but there's one particular star that just stands out and it's so bright. There's one particular star that you see, and it's just filled with an unusual amount of glory. It's not that the other stars aren't great. They are. They're beautiful. But there's this one star that's standing out, and you're looking at it, and you're like, that is awesome. That's our text today. All scripture is breathed out by God. And yet there's certain passages within the God-breathed scriptures that stand out with a, maybe a little more glory and intensity. This is one of them right here. John the Baptist provides a testimony of Jesus that is especially wonderful. Let's look closely. Point number one. The Lamb of God beheld. The Lamb of God beheld, again, verse 29, he sees Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, can you see how in this one verse, in some ways, that phrase by John the Baptist summarizes the entire Bible. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Why would it summarize the entire Bible? It's the story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, this is what's happening. God's plan to redeem people to himself. And the only way that happens is through sending the Lamb of God, his son, to be the sacrifice for our sins. So the entire Bible, in some ways, is centered on verse 29. I mean, just think about it in terms of Christmas. The baby in the manger is really the sacrificial Lamb of God. And again, his name is Jesus, 
Matthew's gospel tells us, because he will save people from their sins. Jesus equaling the Lord's salvation, the sacrificial lamb of God. Let's just do a little bit of biblical theology right here on the lamb of God. I think these moments are very helpful and beautiful. Very, very simple, but very beautiful in my mind. A simple, simple timeline of the theology of the man of God. The lamb of God is first introduced in Exodus with the Passover. God's people being rescued from the Egyptians and the angel of death is coming and the instructions from God are the blood must be on the doorposts. If they're not there, your child will die. But when the blood is there from the lamb that was sacrificed, then your child will be spared. The angel of death will pass over. This is an awesome moment. This is the whole concept of the Passover and the lamb is introduced to God's people, but ultimately it is pointing forward. It is foreshadowing the lamb, the lamb of God. And then you have Christmas, and this is why this is such a big deal, right? Because at Christmas, the incarnation, the lamb has come. The lamb has been sent. I mean, you have to remember that. He's born to die. He wasn't born just to live and parade around and have a good time and then ascend back up into heaven. He came to live and ultimately to die on that horrific cross as the Lamb of God. So the Lamb of God is set, and in Easter, of course, that the Lamb of God is sacrificed. It's no coincidence, loved ones, that Jesus dies at Passover. I mean, orchestrated perfectly by the sovereign God, Jesus, the Lamb of God, dies at the very moment when there's thousands of lambs being sacrificed all over Jerusalem and the blood is flowing down the streets. And meanwhile, there's the very Lamb of God shedding his blood for the sins of the entire world. That's awesome. That's the Lamb of God. And then ultimately, the Bible ends in the book of Revelation where there's a lamb standing as though he was slain. And he opens the scroll And all of a sudden, the power and the title deed for the earth is held by one, and it's the lamb. And then the elders and the angels, they fall down and they worship and they declare and they sing and they honor, worthy is the lamb to receive strength and honor and glory and power. You see, from beginning to end, the theology of the lamb of God is everywhere because he has been sent by God to die for our sins, and we will praise him forever and ever. Amen. The Lamb of God sent, the Lamb of God praised, the Lamb of God who holds the keys to death in Hades. It's this Lamb that the entire world is centered on. No wonder then, John says, behold, the Lamb of God. And isn't this the call for our lives? And our own way to say, with the boldness of the Holy Spirit, behold, The Lamb of God. God, we do pray for that boldness this season because what other purpose is there? I mean, what other purpose can we have than pointing people to the one who saves them from their sins, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God? Notice the ever-important work in verse 29. See what it says next? Who takes away the sin of the world. The sin, singular, of the world. Notice in this beautiful phrase, we see three main things about this verse. Number one, the lamb is the provision of God. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave, he gave. You see, God gave his provision 
for our sin. Incredible. Christmas is the provision of God. The propitiation from God takes away the sin of the world. Propitiation means Jesus Christ took the wrath that we deserve. Romans 3.25, it says, whom God, Christ, whom God put forward as our propitiation. That's incredible. God provides his son to bear the wrath of God, punishment for our sins on Christ, that we don't have to endure the wrath of God. Then to the praise of God, as we just heard in Revelation 5.12, all of eternity is spent praising the lamb who was slain. Because it's the only thing that allows us to live at all. And so all glory and honors do his name. And so this statement includes the provision of God, propitiation from God, and the praise, the praise that goes to God. Incredible. It's awesome. It's beautiful. It's, it's amazing. You know, I find it incredibly beautiful, too, that Jesus worshiped for all of eternity as the lamb that was slain. Why does it say the lamb that was slain? Because he's standing as though a lamb that was slain. It's saying that because in eternity, loved ones, we still see the wounds of Jesus Christ. We see his scars. You can, you can see them visibly there as a reminder of what he did as the sacrificial lamb of God who came to take away our sins. I noticed, I will confess, I noticed this part of this hymn just recently and it blew my mind again. Because we don't always sing all the same verses, but recently this verse was sung and I thought about it and I'm like, oh, I've got to write that down to use it in a sermon. Here I am like a few weeks later, I get to use it. Yay. Okay. Notice, crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side. Rich wounds yet visible above in heaven, in glory. The lamb standing will see his wounds rich, visible above, in beauty glorified. This is, this is eternal vision. No angels in the sky can fully bear that sight. But downward bends their burning eye and mystery sober. No angels in the sky can fully bear the sight of the glory of the lamb that was slain. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See what happens here? This is why the moment you truly see Jesus Christ with eyes of faith, you'll never be never the same. You're, 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 you're never the same again. I mean, who's here today? Who's here tonight, right now? You set your eyes on Jesus Christ for the first time truly. You'll never be the same again. I always want to appeal to our young people, but every woman, who knows who's here right now? You set your eyes on Jesus Christ with true eyes of faith. Your life will never be the same again, just as John the Baptist is testifying before us right now. Behold the Lamb of God, man. You see him, it takes away the sin of the world. Your sin's crushing you. Your sin is destroying you. Your sin is miser making you miserable. Jesus Christ, the lamb that was sent to take away the sin of the world. The lamb of God beheld. Second, the eternal God revealed. The eternal God revealed. Look at verse 30 now. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Wow, this is a fascinating statement, okay? So beautiful on many levels. John knew that he was physically born before Jesus. He knew. He was six months uh, prior to Jesus. They were cousins. 
So what's he talking about that? We mean, Jesus is before me, he's saying. Well, it's not speaking of physical birth order. It's speaking of this, that Jesus Christ existed eternally. That Jesus Christ was begotten, not made, as the creed says. He's the great I am. John was created. Jesus is eternal. And right here, by the way, and John says he ranks before me because he was before me, that blows up the cult's teaching right there that says Jesus was a created being. He wasn't created. He always existed. He's God, the Son of God, eternally existing with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus wasn't created. Jesus, rather, created all things. Where's that? John 1 verse 3. Take a look. John 1 verse 3. I'll read verse 2. He, Christ, he, why is it Christ? The word, capital W, word, logos, the definition, the expression of God. He, Christ, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. This is Jesus. No one like him. Eternally existing. John was finite. Jesus was infinite. John was a prophet. Jesus was the king of kings and lord of lords. Again, verse 30. After me comes the man who ranks before me because he was before me. Jesus has existed eternally. That's why in John chapter 8, Jesus throws down the gauntlet before the religious leaders and puts them into a furious rage of anger. Here's what Jesus says in John 8. Again, he's throwing down the gauntlet here. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews are like, what? You're talking like you know Abraham and you've talked with him and seen him. And so the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And yet you've seen Abraham like in utter horror. What are you, a madman? And then Jesus just, now he really throws it down. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, you could not say a more loaded statement than he's basically picking up on the exact phrasing of what God said to Moses in the burning bush. If the religious leaders know anything, they know this phrase right here. And then see the result? So they picked up stones to throw at him because they knew exactly what he was doing. And to them, that was utter blasphemy. How could you ever possibly equate yourself with the eternal Yahweh, eternally existing I am God? But of course, Jesus could do that because he was that. Self-sufficient, self-sustaining God. Isn't this so interesting? The religious leaders could not take it. They couldn't take it. They couldn't take it. Jesus was so mad. They wanted to kill him. Why? Because they couldn't see it. Notice, John, he sees it, and he loves it. Doesn't that just describe our world right there? There's two people in this world, ones who hate Jesus and want him to die, and those who love Jesus and will do anything for him. In fact, it's fascinating to me, the hard stone heart hears this truth, the hard stone heart hears this truth that Jesus Christ is the great I am, and they want Jesus to die. The soft, faith-filled heart Here's this truth and wants to die for Jesus. Two people in the world, loved ones, which one are you? What a contrast, what a picture of two paths. Look now at verse 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water 
Notice that he might be revealed to Israel. So once again, we see the affirmation of the purpose of John's life and ministry. The revealing of Jesus Christ is right there. His whole purpose. Prepare you the way of the Lord. Uh, Get ready, he's coming. Prepare your hearts with baptism. Cleanse your hearts from sin. Get ready for Jesus Christ. So beautiful this is. John's life and ministry and purpose. Again, Lord, use, use us to do the same. I ask you again, who are you praying for this Christmas season? Who's on your mind? Who's on your heart? Who are you reaching out to love? What, 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 what deeds of service and love and charity are we, are we performing not to gain favor with God out of genuine love for the lost? Who are we begging God for that he might save? Who, who are we taking these Christmas invitations we have today and will receive this month from this church? Who are we praying for to have the opportunity to invite them and even at that moment before they even get here to share Christ with them? God help us. God use us that we might say, behold the Lamb of God. Because our purpose is that we might reveal the Lord Jesus Christ to a lost and dark world. I'm telling you, man, you, you take that Christmas Eve invitation, you pray over it, and you expect the Lord to give you an opportunity to speak and love and invite. I want to commend you too, man, that Christmas Eve weekend. I don't know exact time we're going to do this, but I know George and I are going to be here for sure, Pastor George right here. We're going to be showing up early. We're going to pray our faces off. We're going to pray right here in the worship center. We're going to pray over every seat. Join us, would you? We'll give you more information. Plan on, 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 on the Saturday and possibly on the Sunday morning too. Come early. Like just say, give up another hour. Come and pray that people will be saved from hell. Pray. Ask God to do that. You cannot this Christmas season. I just committed myself that 4 o'clock in pre-service prayer and 8 o'clock pre-service prayer on Sunday morning, 4 o'clock on Saturday. I'm showing up. There's a few of us there, but it's, it's beautiful. I invite you, come out this Christmas. Join us in the family room. Just a few people praying, but asking God to do what only he can do. Because our purpose is to see that Christ is revealed to others and they're saved. God help us. And fill us, Lord, with that desire. We repent of our apathy and our laziness and our worldliness. We repent of our selfishness. We repent, Lord, of our filthiness. And so apathetic and lackadaisical with the things of you, Lord. So indifferent to those who are perishing apart from you. Forgive us, Lord. But now use us, Lord. Use us, Lord. To see great things done for you. The Lamb of God beheld, the eternal God revealed. And now this, the Spirit of God descends. The Spirit of God descends. Look at verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. These verses are incredible. Unlike the other Gospels where the baptism of Jesus is specifically narrated. It tells what happened. And Jesus came to the Jordan and John greeted him and John baptized him. It tells a story. Not in in John's Gospel. What John does here is he recounts, John the author recounts the testimony of John the Baptist of what happened, and it's awesome. 
Notice here that John doesn't emphasize the voice from heaven when God, you know, God said, this is my son, you know, I son, I'm pleased with. He doesn't, he doesn't record that, right? He doesn't even record the baptism by John in the Jordan with Jesus. Rather, the emphasis here, notice, the emphasis in John's gospel is the spirit of God falling on Jesus the Christ. Two times, this is specifically mentioned, and I saw the spirit of God resting powerfully on the Messiah. Why is that so important? Well, this was prophesied. Isaiah 11, verse 1, verses about the Messiah precisely. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, of counsel, of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. This is specifically talking about Jesus Christ. Uh, Another verse. Behold my servant, whom I uphold my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. 700 years before Christ was born. One more verse, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And this is so beautiful because Jesus in Luke 4 unrolls the scroll of Isaiah 61. He reads this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening the, the prison to those who are bound. Jesus reads this from Luke 4, sits down and says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Bam! The Messiah is here. And John the Baptist right now is saying, I saw the spirit of God descend upon this man. And I testify to you that because the Spirit of God is resting on him, he is the very Messiah of God. See, the Spirit of God moving upon God's people in the Old Testament is common. But the Spirit's power in the Old Testament only remained on the individual for the duration that God decided. Like think of Samson. God, give me strength just for a moment so I can push these pillows over and then it'll be over. And he's endowed with the Spirit for a moment, but then it's gone. But what's so glorious about John 1, verses 32 and 33 here, twice it says the Spirit of God remained on him. You want to circle those words? Notice, remained on him. You see that there? Why is that such a big deal? This is the anointing of the Spirit of God that is unlike any other in history. It's the messianic anointing. What John is witnessing, and John knows it, which is so awesome. He's witnessing and he knows. This right here before his eyes is the beginning of the messianic era. He knows he is literally watching the Son of God begin his ministry to save the world from their sin. And the greatest single indicator that this is the Messiah is the Spirit of God rests on him. Come thou long expected Jesus born to set thy people free. John sees this. No wonder he's so excited. One of my favorite authors is A.W. Tozer. One of my favorite quotes from Tozer is, follow the man with oil on his forehead. Listen to the man who listens to God. Follow the man with oil on his forehead. The perfection of that phrase is Jesus Christ. There has never been anyone who has been endowed with the power of the Holy Spirit like Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being fully God and fully man. Jesus received the Spirit of God without limit. 
No wonder then Jesus Christ is the unrivaled, most influential person of all time, inexhaustible in power. See what happens here? The baptism of Jesus as the Spirit of God comes down like a dove, the Father's voice is being heard, is the authentication of God Almighty. God is authenticating His Son, and the sign is is that He is filled with the Holy Spirit. All who truly see Jesus Christ then follow. But now look at the end of verse 33. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now notice how clearly John sees the difference between himself and Jesus here. I love how it's said about John the Baptist's ministry that he prepared the way for Jesus and then he got out of the way. That's a calling in life. Prepare the way for Jesus and then just get out of the way. You know the real marvel here is to Not only was Jesus permanently anointed with the Holy Spirit, ready, ready, but he has come to baptize others with the Holy Spirit as well. Think about that. Think about that. The Son of God comes not only to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he comes, his ministry is to baptize others, to baptize others with the Holy Spirit as well. This too is prophesied in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, and I will put my spirit within you giving you a new heart and a new spirit. So this moment here in John 1 is absolutely massive, man. The world will never be the same again. The one is here. The one is here when the Spirit of God descends upon, but it's the one where the Spirit of God fills, and then he is able to baptize others with the Holy Spirit as well, causing them to become new creations. Jesus Christ, the Lord, can literally take a life and turn them from death to life, from the power of Satan to God can literally regenerate them and make them a new creation to be filled with the Holy Spirit, never to leave them again. I mean, just take a moment to recognize the essential nature of the Holy Spirit then within true believers. The Holy Spirit becomes our guarantee, our seal. The Holy Spirit becomes our glory. The Holy Spirit within us is the sign that we are saved. So let me ask you right now, does the Holy Spirit live in you? You know that he lives in you. Do you see the evidence of his working in your life? The fruit that he brings of love and joy and peace. Do you know that you know that the Holy Spirit is residing in you and caused you to go from death to life? Is the Holy Spirit active and seen and, and filling us within our, 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 our lives? Not that every day is supposed to be this uh, power, power trip, but it, we, we know that he is truly within us. Because the ministry of Christ came to be filled with God's Spirit and then to baptize others with the Holy Spirit of God. I'm telling you, man, you're right now and you're listening to this. You just beg God, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. God, I want so much for you to fall upon, fill my life and fall upon me and lead me. God, I want to know. I got to have an understanding the Spirit of God is dwelling within me and leading me and teaching me and strengthening me. The power of God's Spirit that I cannot do on my own. Don't you see what's happening here? The greatest authentication of Jesus was the Spirit of God. We are no different. The greatest authentication that God is working in you and me is the Holy Spirit of God. It's not your intellect. It's not your works. It's not your impressing this and that. It's the reality of God's Spirit dwelling in you, and He does everything. He is seen. He is power. He is love. He is grace. I'm telling you right now, man, you beg God to fill your life. 
You ask the Holy Spirit to come in and, and do something incredible upon your life right now to make you the dad you always wanted to be, to make you the friend, to make you the servant of God and the lover of Jesus Christ. It's only done by the Holy Spirit of God, and Jesus came to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's awesome. It's such a big deal. Come on, church. The Lord's speaking to you right now. The Holy Spirit's speaking to you. Holy Spirit's like, you want more of me? Or you want more of the world? You want more of me or you want more of your hobby? You want more of me or do you want that relationship you're in? Which is more? Which is more important? You want more of me or you want more money? You want more of me or you want more television? You want more of me? Or do you want more sin? Jesus has come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. One baptism, loved ones. Many fillings. God, fill your church. Holy Spirit, fill your church. Holy Spirit, fill lives even now. Holy Spirit, may we long, may we long for you in living lives of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God beheld, the eternal God revealed, the Spirit of God descends. What a passage. And now this, ready? The Son of God indeed. The Son of God indeed, verse 34. Pure exaltation of Christ. And look how John ends. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Yeah, I believe him, do you? I believe him. I believe he means what he says. I have seen and borne witness. That's awesome that this is the Son of God. So beautiful and life-changing. I mean, to say that statement with faith is to, if you can say, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God, if you say that with faith, eternal life enters your life. This is the Son of God. Died for my sins. I repent of sin. I trust in Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I have seen and bore witness. This is the Son of God. There's no one like Jesus. No one. It's so interesting. Thomas, after the resurrection, he doubted. He said to the disciples that said they saw Jesus, he says, unless I see, I will never believe. So he says, unless I see Christ, Jesus, raised from the dead, and I see the holes in his hands and see the pierce in his side, I will never believe unless I see. Of course, Jesus appears eight days later and appears before Thomas, and he says, look at my wounds and look at my side. And he says, do not disbelieve, but See, and Thomas responds with my Lord and my God, one of the greatest affirmations of the deity of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. He says, my Lord and my God, and then Jesus says this, have you believed because you have seen me? Here we go. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Yes, Lord. That's us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
do you believe? Because when you believe, then you actually start to see.